Welcome to Secret Movie Club Bite Size Pod number four, the last in our mini four-part series. Today I'm going to be talking about 1939's The Wizard of Oz, a movie many people have seen, one of my favorite movies, and I feel in a weird way a Rosetta Stone for a lot of things. It's influenced everybody from uh, Stephen King to James Cameron, and even people who uh, claim they hate it, like Stanley Kubrick, which we'll get into. I think you can see its effect on him, uh, but uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, this week, by the time you hear this, uh, Friday, June 16th, we are going to be showing here at the Secret Movie Club Theater a double bill of Sexy Beast, Jonathan Glazer's Sexy Beast, and Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor as part of our Heist Capers and Con series. Two very unsettling heist movies that I think are fascinating. Saturday at 4, we're doing A Personal Journey with Martin Scorsese through American Movies, one of my favorite documentaries about movies ever made. And then we follow that up with a crazy double bill of Panos Cosmastos movies, Beyond the Black Rainbow, which will be on 35mm, and that starts at 9 on Saturday, June 17th, uh, and followed by Mandy, a Panos Cosmastos follow-up with Nick Cage, which is nuts. Next Wednesday, we are doing uh, Teen Wolf on 35, Michael J. Fox's Teen Wolf, the original Teen Wolf. Uh, and Movie Club, uh, a band, is actually going to play a live set. And then Thursday, uh, it's sold out, but uh, we are doing Clue on 35mm, the 1980s. Now, beloved cult hit uh, Clue, based on the board game. Uh, but Myrtle.com is doing a live murder mystery before in uh, the Secret Movie Club theater Stay tuned because over the next few weeks, we're finally going to roll out our summer program, our summer season from July to September. And please, if you like what we're doing, leave us a review, a Yelp review, a Google review for our events or uh, an Apple podcast review if you like our podcast. Anything helps. If you have any comments, ideas, thoughts, write us a community at secretmovieclub.com. And to get tickets, you can go just Google Eventbrite and Secret Movie Club. And to see everything we do, and we have a lot, go just to our website, secretmovieclub.com. You're going to see our events, our calendar, our movie store, our blogs, which are free, our podcasts, which are free. We've even done some TV, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So just go to secretmovieclub.com. For today's final Bite Size Pod 4, I wanted to talk about a movie that I feel is at the epicenter of so much cinema. And in a weird way, it may be hiding in broad daylight, and that is the 1939 Wizard of Oz, directed by Victor Fleming, starring Judy Garland uh, and uh, many others, uh, Margaret Hamilton, Ray Bolger, uh, uh, just an incredible cast. And you've probably seen it if you're my age, I'm 45. It was a staple on network television where they would take the movie and make it three hours with tons of commercial breaks, which we would all sit through, but it would get a little ridiculous. They'd show five or 10 minutes of the movie and then there'd be a commercial break. And I remember the one that always drove me nuts was when they got to the Emerald City and they met what they thought was the wizard and the cowardly lion ran and jumped through a window. They would always at that moment, that peak moment, uh, cut to a commercial every single time. And I'd be like, ah, even as a seven-year-old, I did not, I dreaded that commercial break. Uh, since then, though, it's been in the theaters countless times. They did a 3D version of it, tons of re-releases, and now you can see it streaming, of course. Uh, it, but for all of that, the movie and its structure have influenced so many of the titans of pop culture 
uh, including, and this is just a short list, uh, James Cameron, and we're going to talk about this, David Lynch, uh, Steven Spielberg, who named it as the first movie of AFI's movie club during the pandemic, um, and Stephen King. And interestingly, uh, Stanley Kubrick, uh, his daughter said he hated that movie, hated Wizard of Oz, and yet I find it funny because I, I think it's almost impossible to watch 2001 without seeing a bit of Wizard of Oz in it, which I'll get to. And I love Kubrick, so I hope Kubrick is not, I don't think Kubrick really believed in an afterlife, but if he did, I hope he's not rolling around in his grave or cursing me from beyond. Let's uh, let's just start off with uh, the basics. In 1939, uh, often considered probably the Annus Mirabilis of uh, Hollywood, the, the, the best year Hollywood ever had, so many incredible films came out. Uh, just a short list includes John Ford's Young Mr. Lincoln and Stagecoach. Uh, although this movie has fallen out of favor and become highly problematic uh, for decades and decades, the gold standard was uh, the uh, Gone with the Wind, produced by David O. Selznick, uh, also ostensibly uh, directed by Victor Fleming. I always found it interesting that Victor Fleming got the credit on uh, the two most influential movies in 1939. And he's a great director. I love Victor Fleming. Uh, but uh, George Cooker directed a bit of Gone with the Wind. There were a lot of directors in and out. It was MGM. It's a whole thing. Even among those, one of the movies that just captivated the country was The Wizard of Oz. And the story and the way the movie is made, and this is really important, I'll just try to encapsulate it, is we, and this is based on a very famous children's novel by L. Frank Baum, uh, who wrote many novels in this series, uh, The Wizard of Oz. So it's an adaptation, sort of like, Harry Potter would be years and years later that everyone was anxiously waiting for. It tells the story of Dorothy, who is an orphan, interestingly, who lives with her uncle and aunt. Her parents appear to be dead uh, on a farm in Kansas. She has a dog she loves named Toto. And the movie starts in sepia tone, uh, sepia tone, black and white. And she, we see everybody on the farm. She's very friendly with the farmhands. Dorothy does not get along with a local woman who hates her dog. And so the movie opens roughly with Toto having bitten this woman. This woman comes to the farm and says, I'm putting that dog down. Uh, Dorothy decides she's got to run away. Uh, when she runs away, she meets this carnival man who is sort of a, you know, just one of those people you would see in a carnival. He's very uh, persuasive and charming, but we can see He's got an act. And then Dorothy uh, goes back home. At that moment, a tornado happens. Dorothy gets knocked in the head by a window, uh, passes out, and then has uh, suddenly, uh, we, we, we don't quite know, but the house lifts off the ground. She sees uh, she's caught in this tornado, and the tornado drops her down in the magical world of Oz. And she has flattened a wicked witch. And she comes out into this land of little people called Munchkins. They're delighted that she's killed this witch. The good witch of the north, Glenda, appears. Suddenly the wicked witch of the west uh, appears. I, I hope I'm getting my directions right. Forgive me, I should have studied this. And that uh, we notice right away is the, played by the same actor who was playing the woman who wanted to kill Toto. And uh, basically Glenda and the Munchkins tell Dorothy if she follows the yellow brick road and goes to the Emerald City, she can ask the Wizard of Oz uh, to get her back home. And she gets these ruby slippers, which were uh, stolen by the Wicked Witch of the East that she killed. 
and the Wicked Witch of the West wants the slippers, but the Glenda, the good witch, basically says, don't listen to her. Just go to the Emerald City. Ask the wizard. You'll get back home to Kansas. So Dorothy begins this odyssey through this magical land, and it's enchanting. Uh, there are trees that talk. She meets a scarecrow who wants a brain. So she says, come with me to Odd, to the Emerald City. We'll ask the, the wizard for a brain. They meet a tin man who wants a heart. They meet a cowardly lion who wants some courage. And the witch, the wicked witch, the whole time is plotting to basically do whatever she has to do, kill Dorothy to get these ruby slippers. They get to the Emerald City. They meet the wizard who is fearsome. Uh, just this huge floating discombobulated head with all this smoke. But he tells them basically they have to go uh, take on the Wicked Witch of uh, the West. So they do, uh, as they're going, she gets stolen by the winged monkeys who are the guards of the Wicked Witch. And the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and the Lion uh, basically go and rescue her. They go back to the wizard. They've done everything he's asked. Dorothy kills the witch by... uh, basically saving Toto and throwing water on her. And it's the very famous, I'm melting, I'm melting. Uh, And then they go back and the wizard is revealed to be nothing other than a charlatan. Uh, He too wants to get back to Kansas. He turns out to be an American hustler who was just using all this technology to seem fearsome. They all uh, are going to get on this air balloon back to Kansas. He suddenly takes off and Glenda says, Dorothy, didn't you know you could always get back home? You just have to click your... Heels or your ruby slippers three times. Dorothy does. She goes back home to Kansas. And sure enough, we recognize that the Scarecrow was one of the farmhands. The Tin Man was one of the farmhands. The Lion was one of the farmhands. And in Oz, they all discovered that they had, you know, the Scarecrow discovers he had a brain all along. The Tin Man had a heart all along. The Wizard or the Lion had courage all along. And it's really an amazing tale. But ostensibly at the end of Wizard of Oz, it was a dream. Dorothy had a dream and it's a but at the same time we uh, sense that Oz is maybe more than a dream and we can't completely figure it out so there's this quote by the Sufi poet Rumi that uh, I love he said a revealer of mystery and that which is revealed are one and the same Uh, I've always loved that and I felt in a weird way that's at the heart of the Wizard of Oz The movie itself is incredibly made. Even by today's standards, it's still totally hypnotic and engrossing and enchanting. Uh, Every special effect was put to use here. And they're just creative uses of effects that still haven't been matched. Like the move from black and white sepia tone to color is incredible, including this incredible shot where they painted people black and white uh, so that when they moved out to the munchkin land in color, they shot the whole thing in color. But it, it appears to seamlessly move from black and white to color with no digital help, obviously, in 1939. Uh, there are matte paintings. There's puppetry. There are incredible costumes. Very famously, Buddy Epson, who would later go on to be famous on the Beverly Hillbillies, was originally going to be the Tin Man, but he had an allergic reaction to the metallic paint in the costume. And so uh, another actor uh, had to basically take his place. Yeah, Jack Haley was, uh, Jack Haley took over for Buddy Epson. And Burt Lars, a very famous cowardly lion. Uh, So many things seeped into pop culture. 
I mean, the Wicked Witch of the West has become like an icon for all different kinds of subgroups. Of course, Judy Garland, it's such a complicated movie. Judy Garland was a teenage actor, but a beautiful singer. She sang, you know, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, which is a song we all remember. I, I buried one of the leads here. I mean, The Wizard of Oz is a musical, and almost every musical number in the picture is something we all know. It's just seeped into our pop uh, culture, especially Over the Rainbow. But Judy Garland, they were keeping her, the same that they did with the Beatles, Orson Welles, a lot of those people. Uh, she was kept awake and, and working crazy hours on speed and uh, just psychologically abused. And it, it stuck with her for the rest of her life and career uh, in a horrible way. So there's a complicated history to The Wizard of Oz as well. And what I was thinking about was two things, which I want to explore here in a bite-sized way. One is that that story structure I put forward as one of the the most enduring, durable, and fascinating story structures uh, we've ever had. This story I would call the Odyssey, and The Wizard of Oz is an odyssey. Dorothy goes on an odyssey. Uh, at the same time, she also goes to another world, another place, and this other place has a power. It's like our own world, but it's not quite. It's different. The other thing is how many of our greatest big canvas storytellers have clearly been influenced by Wizard of Oz, which I think says something as well. One of the interesting people is Stephen King uh, in literature. Stephen King set out when he was uh, an ambitious college student. He was hugely influenced by The Lord of the Rings. Another, I would say, book that has Wizard of Oz parallels and ramifications. And we talked about this in the Bite Size Pause uh, just two ago. But Stephen King wanted to write an equivalent of Lord of the Rings, like the the longest, largest, biggest pop culture literary work of science fiction fantasy adventure ever. And he started and he ended up finishing it. He wrote all seven books. It is my three favorite works by Stephen King or The Stand, another kind of Wizard of Oz riff in a weird way. The Stand, It, and the Dark Tower series, although I would very much single out uh, Dark Tower 4, Wizard and Glass as my favorite. Basically, King came to realize, probably when he started it, but certainly by the time we got to the 1980s and 1990s, that many of his books were united with characters who reappeared, but also the Dark Tower. And so basically... The Dark Tower series is about a cowboy mythic hero, anti-hero type character named Roland, who also has, a, he's a kind of knight as well. There are touches of an Arthurian legend in him. And he is seeking the Dark Tower, and he's pursuing a man in black. And he has to save uh, the Dark Tower, and he has to defeat and vanquish the man in black and the Crimson King, or his world, and we discover our world, which are interconnected, they're parallel worlds in a kind of way. It's all going to collapse. In number four, Wizard and Glass, there are these crystal balls, very much like in Lord of the Rings, those eyes of Saruman uh, that Sauron has. and Or I'm, I'm confused, I'm sorry. The, Sar, the eyes of Sauron that Saruman has. And you see them in The Wizard of Oz as well, these, these crystal balls. The Wicked Witch has them. Uh, and... In the Dark Tower series, these balls can also, they have magical powers that can see the future. And it's interesting that Stephen King affirms this other world that is traversable from our world. 
he also touched on it when he co-wrote a book with Peter Straub in 1984 that I'm actually reading right now called The Talisman. it's really interesting that Stephen King has really been driven by this. Going from Stephen King, I would point out, uh, someone has pointed out to me, and I find this fascinating, uh, Steven Spielberg, no surprise, is a huge Wizard of Oz fan. And I think it's not a huge leap to, to say that some of his movies embody, if just through that absorbed influence, a kind of Wizard of Oz ethos. Uh, Close Encounters, I think, is essentially a kind of Wizard of Oz where, uh, you know, the Richard Dreyfus character is visited by these aliens and he basically wants to go to, you could call the, the mountain where the aliens land, a kind of Emerald City. And when he finally meets the aliens and makes that, you know, he has the close encounter of the third kind. Uh, it is a very Wizard of Oz moment, but in our world. Someone made the really interesting point that E.T. is the Wizard of Oz in reverse, where E.T. is Dorothy. <laughs> And I thought that was really, really like great. And you could look at Elliot and his brothers and sisters weirdly as the scarecrow, the tin man and the lion. And they're just trying to help E.T. get back home. So in a weird way, it's taking the Wizard of Oz and inverting it, which I, who knows if that's what they said they were going to do. If Melissa Matheson, the screenwriter, decided to do that. But if she did, what a brilliant inversion going from Spielberg. It, you, David Lynch has explicitly acknowledged how influential and important uh, The Wizard of Oz is to his work. If you watch uh, Wild at Heart, a, a movie I really enjoy with Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern, there is there are all of these Wizard of Oz sub-motifs, including Cheryl Lee, who would go on to play Laura Palmer in the Twin Peaks series, appearing as a kind of Glenda the Good Witch to Nicolas Cage, but I mean explicitly appearing to him. She's floating in the air. She was actually on a crane, I heard, like a techno crane hung by a hook. But she's she's made up to look like Glenda. The the trip that Sailor and Lulu, that's Nick Cage and Laura Dern are taking, is a kind of yellow brick road. They're trying to escape Laura Dern's mother, who is a wicked witch. All of and David David Lynch just totally leans into the Wizard of Oz iconography in that in a wonderful way. I I love how he does it. But I would actually point to Twin Peaks as a more digested and absorbed Wizard of Oz, where we have our world, but then there's the Black Lodge, the Red Lodge, there's Bob, there's the man from uh, another place, there's uh, all of that unsettling other world, worlds on top of each other. Uh, interestingly, I'll just touch on this, Kubrick, uh, you, there's, I found some fascinating articles you should totally check out where uh, writers have, through interviews and Kubrick's own daughter and his brother-in-law, Jan Harland, and others, they've put together Kubrick's lists of the movies he loved. And it's a great list. I I didn't know, but his daughter said Kubrick loved White Men Can't Jump, the Ron Shelton movie starring Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson from the early 90s. I've never seen it, but now now i got to watch it. Interestingly, though, his daughter said that Kubrick hated The Wizard of Oz. And I'm sure Kubrick had reasons for that. I, there could be... Any number of things I could fully understand why he hated about it. And yet, I think specifically when you look at 2001 and The Shining, there is, again, a kind of odyssey. I mean, it's called a space odyssey. The characters go on where there is a world that exists with our world. In the case of 2001, it's 
it does exist literally on our planet because the monolith, uh, the, the apes discover the monolith here on Earth. But then there's a monolith on the moon and then monolith in Jupiter. But that that is a kind of sci-fi Wizard of Oz. And The Shining is a kind of uh, horror Wizard of Oz written by Stephen King. So there, there may very well just be overlaps upon overlaps there. I really want to know why uh, Kubrick hated the Wizard of Oz. I probably should try to get a hold of his daughter and see if she would, she would tell us why that was. Uh, but I do find it funny that he hated it, and yet I think Kubrick had a wonderful sense of creating worlds and worlds upon our world. Moving on from there, more recently... James Cameron constantly talks about how The Wizard of Oz is his favorite movie. He said something interesting, too, that The Wizard of Oz is actually the only movie he, older movie he can really engage with. So I guess he means a movie from the 30s. That seemed like an extreme statement to me, especially coming from someone who I consider brilliant and uh, uh, smart and savvy as James Cameron. I, I think I get what he means. Maybe he doesn't really engage with older movies. As much as people like Martin Scorsese or Steven Spielberg, totally legitimate, totally fair. But uh, James Cameron says, oh, and I don't know if you, my mic's going to pick this up, but Alex Olivier, our projectionist, is testing our movie for tonight. So you may be hearing the pre-focused sound uh, as I talk. But um, the uh, it, nevertheless, uh, James Cameron has cited The Wizard of Oz as hugely important and influential to him. And uh, what's interesting is he said that uh, with Terminator 2, and I never thought about this until I heard the interview, interestingly, Cameron said he was doing ecstasy and listening to Sting's song, Russians, which, and I like Sting. I like the police, but I listened to Russians, and it was not a song that I would listen to too many times. So I'm a bit obsessed with this idea of James Cameron high on ecstasy listening to Russians the Sting song, but nevertheless, he said that he was inspired to do T2 because there's a line in there that says the Russians love their children too, and Cameron was like, there it is. I'm not really interested in nuclear war and the apocalypse, which he was thinking would have to be what T2 was about, but he thought, I'm more interested in how a tin man gets his heart, and I think that's really speaking to Cameron's genius, uh, which is that Cameron understood a movie about what Terminator, the first Terminator, the first Terminator was about trying to prevent Skynet from launching World War III. And I guess the the blase way, the, the cliche would be, okay, well, T2 is going to be that Skynet battle. But instead, Cameron rightfully was like, it can't be. That's not interesting, dramatically or narratively or cinematically. What's more interesting is another Terminator coming and now he's a good Terminator, and he has to save a young John Connor, and a father-son surrogate relationship is formed. And this is how a Tin Man gets his heart. And I thought that was interesting. I never would have said that T2 was the Wizard of Oz, but it is in a way. And then Avatar clearly is a kind of Wizard of Oz where you have a character who's a paraplegic who, through an Avatar, goes into the world of the Navi, and it's a magical world on this planet, uh, and it's animated. And in fact, it does a kind of live action CGI thing, which would be akin to the black and white color thing. Uh, so again, Cameron's no dummy. And the the last thing I wanted to point out cinematically is we just did Lord of the Rings and in Return of the King and Peter Jackson's Return of the King, when Frodo and Sam and Gollum are climbing up those just vertiginous steps to get into Mordor right next to the palace of one of the dead 
I forget what they call the Dark Riders or the Pale Riders, those dead kings uh, who work now for Sauron. Uh, but that shriek and the beam is emitted and it's green like the Emerald City. And there are these shots that imitate the shots of when the soldiers for the Wicked Witch of the West, the monkey soldiers and the other soldiers who kind of look like Russian Cossacks, uh, are coming out of her palace in the 1939 Wizard of Oz. It feels like a direct visual reference uh, to those shots. Uh, Peter Jackson feels like he's directly referencing it. And Lord of the Rings uh, feels like a kind of Wizard of Oz. I mean, all those worlds that Peter Jackson creates uh, in Middle Earth, which is kind of our Earth, but was an Earth before our era, our cycle, which is another thing I find fascinating. People who believe that it's more akin to... Uh, we have cycles upon cycles, and that's why there could have been an Atlantis and there could have been technologies thousands of years ago that died and have disappeared and have been erased, and now we're in a cycle. I think there's a Hindu belief about that, about cycles being like a million years or something. Um, but Middle Earth and Lord of the Rings sort of has that. Uh, the The final thing that I want to touch on, and I can really hear this pre-focus. So if you can hear this pre, I'm going to let it go because i got to finish recording this. But if you're hearing something in the background you are hearing top gun i'll just let you know uh which i don't know would you consider top gun a, a wizard of oz riff uh i leave that to you audience uh the but nevertheless uh the final thing i wanted to say is that i also have a personal connection to the wizard of oz and uh it is this my great-grandfather sam levine although his name was probably lakin he was a ukrainian russian jew and he came over in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and uh, he, he had what felt partly like a tragic life. His first wife died. He had a daughter. They came here. Uh, he unionized the garment district in New York or was one of the unionizers. He got blackballed and sent to Chicago, unionized there, got blackballed. And he came to Hollywood and they accepted him. And he became the head tailor or one of the head tailors at MGM uh, in Culver City. Uh, he had my, my grandmother, his second daughter, Sally, and she would go visit him. She got a lot of autographs, uh, including Eric von Stroheim's and a bunch of cool people waiting outside the MGM uh, lot. And uh, my great-grandfather would invite her onto the set. My grandfather did the interior lining for the Tin Man's outfit and worked on Dorothy's ruby red slippers for The Wizard of Oz. And he invited her onto the set. And she was there the day that the lion, the Tin Man, and the Scarecrow were at that rock outcropping looking at the Wicked Witch's castle where all the guards came out that would later influence Peter Jackson. And they're talking about how they're going to get in there. She was there for that day of shooting. And she would always tell me when she'd see it, she said, I think I'm just off camera left. Uh, and so whenever I see the movie and uh, I see that shot, I think of my Bubby and uh, my great grandfather, Sam uh, Levin, Sam Levine. And our connection to that movie literally <laughs> as, as, uh, tailors. I mean, I obviously I don't have any tailoring skill whatsoever, so I don't. I'm not gonna try to say like I'm part of that. But I, I think about my family and my family's connection. And I I want to end where I began, which is that Rumi quote: "A revealer of mystery and that which is revealed are one and the same." I I don't want to say anything. My dad was really into Zen Buddhism, and the thing I loved about it was he would tell me these Zen stories, but never really explain them to me. Uh, and and but the point was he wanted me to think about him. He didn't want to cut off my thinking by saying, "Well, here's what I think it means." And he told me one story. I'll have to tell you another time that took me like 
15 years, I think, 10, 15 years to figure out. But I'm so grateful I had this aha moment on the toilet. Sorry, it's probably too much information. I was like, that's what it means. I was like 23. And that's that's what it's meant to me ever since. But um, the, uh, you know, that quote, that Rumi quote, a revealer of mystery and that which is revealed are one and the same means something to me. Uh, I want to say more, but I, I feel like that it'd be gilding the lily and I shouldn't. Uh, and yet I will say that there's something in that quote and something in the way that The Wizard of Oz uh, was executed as a movie uh, that's deeply important to me. And I want to say more, but I think we've gotten to that part where the light ends in town. Quote Bruce Springsteen, I think we're at the darkness on the edge of town and beyond that is where words can't go. And uh, we all got to go in that dark ourselves and and find out what's there and then report back. As always, uh, if you like what you're hearing, please give us a review. Yelp, Google, uh, Apple Podcasts, anywhere that you can give a review. If there's uh, any notes, thoughts, ideas, you have things we can do better, we have to do better, write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. You can find out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. Get tickets at Eventbrite. Uh, just Google Eventbrite, secretmovieclub.com. And uh, like I said, we will be returning next week with Secret Movie Club Podcast 152, which will be comfort food cinema uh, with a specific look at Cameron Crowe's We Bought a Zoo. I think that was made in 2012, 2011, uh, starring Matt Damon. Uh, and uh, the, whole, the whole gang will be back. So uh, please join us then. Until then, thank you for going on this journey of four bite-sized podcasts. I want to hear what you think. Uh, I want to hear what we can do better. Uh, and I really appreciate you being part of the Secret Movie Club and part of this community. And our summer season will be coming in the next two weeks, so look out for it. Okay, have a great week. I love you, family.